Hi, everyone. Before we start the episode for today, I just want to apologize if the audio goes in and out or fluctuates when I was both recording and when I was reviewing the recording. I think I've cleaned most of it up, but there was some kind of fading in and out um, throughout the recording. I was having issues when recording my other podcast too, so I'm not sure if it's the computer, the software, or the microphone. Um, so I am working on that. I think the microphone's good because it's relatively new, but I just want to apologize if something goes up or down really quickly. I think I got everything. And also I did notice too, I think my voice was a little scratchier than usual. It's I live in pollen country, so allergies are really acting up. So I just wanted to come in and say that before we started because, you know, I didn't want anybody to be surprised if the volume went up or down really quickly if I just didn't catch that. All right. Thank you so much. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Danger on Delmarva. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and thank you so much for taking time to listen today. If you're new here, what I do is I cover a variety of different types of events that have taken place on Delmarva, which is on the east coast of the United States. It encompasses all of Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. I explore topics that vary from true crime to natural and man-made disasters and other events that have helped shape Delmarva. And in the second episode, recounting the gale of 1878, you'll see how that took place literally. Now, this will be a pretty long episode, so I just want to get right back into um, the retelling of those events. Before I do get started, though, I do just want to emphasize that you do need to listen to the first episode. So if you've not, please go back and um, listen to that one. Also, all of my sources will be linked in the description of the episode, as well as I am relying heavily upon a report that the Delaware Geological Survey put out in the early 2000s. Um, they did a lot of research, and within their report or survey, their were numerous sources that they cited. And while I did use some other external sources, a lot of the information did come from that survey since, you know, they had used so many different sources as well to get their information. So with all that being said, let's pick up where we left off last episode. Now, at the end of the last episode, I had just discussed an incident or events where a sailor from Boston had been stranded on Delmarva because his boat had been wrecked. He was one of only two crew members who had survived with the other crew member being injured, and he wanted to get back home to Boston. He had been told that if he went to Wilmington to one of the government houses that he would be provided assistance, but unfortunately that wasn't the case. However, many members of the Wilmington community did come together and were able to help secure him passage back home as well as provide him with some clothes. So as so many times before, whenever something tragic occurs, the communities 
come together to help support those in need. And while I may retell some other incidents where people may have stolen something or tried to scam or con someone, I think we do have to take a look back at the time, especially looking back at, you know, when I said there was not really any government assistance to try to help that um, sailor get back to Boston. In the same vein, there were not readily available government resources to help so many people who had lost either part or everything that they owned to this storm. So some people were put into an almost impossible situation of making sure that they or their family were fed or sheltered. So we just, I think, need to keep that context in mind and not just think if someone stole one thing that they were necessarily bad. It's that they were in you know, an unimaginable situation. And while today, you know, things may not be immediately done, there's still a lot more resources that we have compared to 1878 and trying to get families settled once they have lost everything, especially when telegraph wires would have been down, when, you know, there weren't telephones and there was no way to get um, communication to other parts of the United States quickly, at least, even though the rest of the country was aware of what was going on, because by this point, the Army had set up a series of signal bases where they could track storms. Not as efficient as we have today, of course, but at least it was a start to you know, things to come. One of the first instances recounted of someone taking other items was during the storm. Someone drilled a hole um, through the door of what sounds like to be a pub. It's called the, the Byard House. And they took two bottles of whiskey, cigars, and $5. Um, so you may question the cigars and the whiskey, but the $5, I'm sure is something that they would have needed. And who knows, maybe the whiskey itself as well, considering the, the events that everybody had to go through. I did mention in the previous episode about marshes. There are marshes in a lot of the areas, especially as you're approaching some of the islands um, on the Eastern shore. And it was feared that a number of men had actually drowned because they were working um, in the marshes near Leipzig, Delaware. And even though one did drown, most of them were found alive. I was not able to find out exactly how many men exactly were in that party, but it just said several. So we're thinking more than four or five is what I would assume. Cattle was also kept within the marshes. Now, marshes themselves, it's where there is ground underneath the water but the water usually lays over for longer periods of time so cattle were out amongst um, the marshy area and most of the cattle unfortunately did drown a hotel in that area took a lot of damage where the hotel itself um, was described as being quote twisted around by the wind end quote 
and some of the other parts of the hotel because you know we need to remember too not everything was always connected to the house so um in terms of the hotel there was a bar a ballroom and bathhouses and all of those were taken away they were swept away and the family that ran it actually had to leave by boat now something that will come up a little bit later is uh, along the route of the storm the st- the tall steeples of churches were seen to be falling off or being blown off buildings and this became a concern and in this particular area cuz Leipzig is around I'm going to say mid Delaware to give it a general idea as well as Frederica and that's where the steeple of the Methodist um, Episcopal I apologize. The Methodist Episcopal Church um, was taken off by the storm. So those did become a concern through the events of um, this particular gale. In a one-hour period of time, the tide arose by four feet. So almost the height of many people, I'm sure, so... You know, that's how tall it rose, not to mention the normal, you know, tide would be coming in at some point. So that was to be added to anything else that was there. And still staying around the middle part of Delaware in Milford. Uh, now, Milford is not directly on the coast, but there are a number of rivers, tributaries that lead all throughout the state. And in Milford, there's a river called the Mispillion River, and it was really, really overtaken by the water, um, the tides that were coming in, <clears throat> excuse me, the tides that were coming in. And at first, the lighthouse keeper in the area had to take his family and go to the very top of a lighthouse. And so those are quite tall sc- structures just to be able to serve the purpose that they need to serve. In the end, they did lose all of their cattle um, and livestock. And something, too, to remember is livestock was not necessarily, you know, a business for everybody. It was sometimes just a matter of survival of being able to take care of yourself and being resourceful, um, you know, with having the livestock available. At Bombay Hook, which is now a National Wildlife Refuge, there was a very high wave that came in and while the exact height is not noted, it is said that those who are on the western side of Bombay Hook did see the water coming in, but they didn't know how destructive it was going to be until they started to hear more of the sounds that the wave was bringing in. And then that's when they went further inland. Around this same area, there was a recounting of men who were working for a farmer who had lost a good portion of everything that he had um, while in the efforts to help him ended up being stuck with, you know, water and wind coming in. And they actually had to strap themselves to a cherry tree. Now, I know you're probably thinking... What did this do? How did they strap themselves? But they were afraid of being basically taken away by the winds and the force of the water. And 
you know, they actually, what they would refer to as lashing themselves um, to the tree in order not to blow away. And if you do recall from the previous um, episode, there were stories of people who tied other people to a mast or other parts of a ship, afraid that if the water came over the ship or if the wind was too intense, that those people would be blown overboard. And while in some cases it did help such as this, in other cases in terms of on a boat, it did not always come to the expected outcome. And looking at it through the viewpoint of one of the men who was stuck near the cherry tree and in the cherry tree, it was because of his knowledge of a storm that he had been in previously um, on, a, on a ship that he knew what to do in order to try to help save everybody. So um, the wind was about 60 miles per hour at that time, and pretty much all of the farmers in that area lost most, if not everything, that they had in regards to livestock and crops. And while farming um, was one of the biggest industries in the area, resort area tourism was just starting out at this time. And there was an area of Collins, from Delaware, called Collins Beach. And a lot of people from the northern region, um, more like Wilmington, Delaware, and even Philadelphia, uh, would come down to Collins Beach as either a day trip or even to stay a little bit. So Mr. Collins, who you know the, the beach was named after, did have a resort and it had a hotel. There were some other things that the hotel and resort had that some other places may not have had immediately available, such as shuffleboard courts. They had large dining areas and they had billiards. I wasn't sure what they meant by they had swings. I'm not sure if they meant... You know, just the swings we think of when we think of little kids going out to a swing set or if it was something else possibly. Um, but that was seen as an actual, um, I guess you'd say a draw to the area was to have that. Collins Beach had just previously over the last couple of years experienced damage on other storms. So to have this one come in so quickly after two years of having at least one storm come in that damaged the hotel and resort area, it was going to be a struggle to get back to even close to where they were. And it's estimated that this storm, coupled, you know, especially with the previous years, really took its toll on the tourism industry of the eastern shore of Delaware um, and probably parts of Maryland as well, even though it's a different state. It's all along the same coastline. So... There was a description given for what occurred at the Collins Beach. So I am going to read this, um, and we're going to start here. Perhaps received the severest shock from the wind and waves of any other place along the coast. Shortly after daylight, while Mr. Collins was looking out upon the driving tempest, he saw as if it were a huge wave lifted up out of the bay, which came with flying speed, breaking over the top of the beach, in a mighty billow, bursting open the doors of the hotel, sweeping the ballroom, stables, pavilion, bathhouses, everything but the hotel property, before it and carrying them out of sight. 
the mighty tide rolled on inland, submerging the country for a distance of one or two miles, end quote. So the water damage itself in that area would have been immense if the, the actual tide itself came in to one to two miles. Um, just being from the area, I find that's on the one hand so hard to believe, but on the other hand, knowing how low-lying the areas are, it's not really beyond, you know, the realm of possibility. Of course, we have the recounting here. And thinking about how low to sea level that most of the area is, you know, it wouldn't take much to have water come in. And because the, the land itself is so low, it's not like there's this this hill or a grade for the water to go back down. It's just going to sit there, basically. If we work our way up to Newcastle County, um, some of the biggest damage took place along the canal. Um, you may have heard me previously refer to the, the Chesapeake and Delaware or C&D Canal. And arguably, some people will say anything above the canal is not Delmarva, but yes, Delmarva does encompass all of Delaware, whether it's above or below the canal. And one of the biggest impacts to the area as far as people being able to travel to get back home if they were stranded on Delmarva or any parts below um, Newcastle um, and were trying to get back home, parts of the railroad track were taken away. The Pennsylvania and Delaware Railroad, there was about a one-mile stretch that was taken away, and the track itself was carried for quite a distance as well. So there would be the repairs to make to that, as well as the limitations it brought, not only for travel for those trying to get back up north, but for the influx of any goods or you know, people who may have been coming in to help. That you know, whole area was limited because of the impact and devastating effect that the storm had on the railroad. Now, something that a lot of people tend to forget about or at least kind of push it to the back of their minds in regards to floods is it's not always just the water that brings the damage. As water, whether it's through a flood, um, roaring torrents, anything like that, will gather up debris and then take it with it. So in some floods, you may have seen pictures of actual trees being brought down and then being swept along a river. Some people in northern Delaware, and I will dare say, even though it's not documented in the information I've read, in all parts of the country affected by the storm, people were trying to gather wood and anything else that they literally saw floating by because they were not going to have access to any new goods coming in, um, depending on where they lived. You know, there may not be the railroad um, capability and the accessibility, as well as any of the supplies that they had saved were now gone. So with the water moving the way it was, people were trying to gather firewood, um, and other goods that they would need to get through the immediate time period. And in a type of instance that once I hear or read about it, it makes sense, but I never thought about it in this manner. Um, 
remember, there were no cars at the time, but people did need to buy carriages, and there was a carriage showroom that one gentleman had, um, a gentleman by the name of, his name was Jones Guthrie, and the water was able to lift the carriages up, but the building stood firm, so as the carriages, which was lighter than the density of the water, were pushed up, it actually damaged the top of the carriages because the carriages went up to the ceiling and they got damaged. So again, that's something I probably would have never even thought about happening um, in terms of the force actually taking something up and having so much force behind it, it could damage the top of something. Devastation continued with livestock um, drowning. In one case, one poor cow was able to stay afloat. Um, they had been on a wharf or had either been on it originally or had managed to get to a wharf, but it was just kind of stuck in the middle of this vast area of water. Um, whether or not it land that was being temporarily covered by water because of the storm or if there were areas already, you know, within the waterway that had overflowed. I don't know the exact circumstances, but a cow somehow got onto a wharf and was just kind of stuck in the middle of this temporary lake, if you will. Boats that were, sought, were thought safe because they had been tied up already were not safe as the forces of the wind and the water did force at least one ship, the Water Witch, um, out again. So even though it had been tied up and moored, and in the process of it breaking free and starting to float, it actually um, hit a canal boat and the water witch did not survive. It actually sunk. And parts of the railroad in this part of Delaware as well, though not taken away or, you know, the water didn't actually carry it away, it was still covered by water so people couldn't use that section of track even just to get into the general area and then try to get to um, more southern points by using conventional means. That part of the railway had to be, you know, the services had to be suspended as well as some of the streets that were in the area and most heavily traveled, I'm sure, usually because of the railroad were completely underwater as well. Now, to tell you the force of this water, as if you haven't already heard enough stories to know how strong the wind and the wave was, there were many, many buildings who lost their roofs. Um, some of them were schools too, which of course then would set back the education of many of the young people in the area. There were some houses being built upon or around Van Buren streets. It was eight in Van Buren which honestly is kind of chilling because I have lived in a couple different parts of the shore or on Delmarva and, you know, I would pass Van Buren Street all of the time, but six houses had just been constructed and four were completely destroyed as well as some other houses in um, neighboring streets that were under construction. So brick is not you know, something that is easily brought down. Usually a brick building is one of the strongest buildings and heaviest buildings, but 
four out of six were completely destroyed. Communication did continue to be a struggle and more and more parts, even if it was just short areas of the railroad, were shut down because they were covered with water. Um, but people were working quickly and efficiently because by 9 p.m. of that evening, and just to remind everybody what day it was, it was October 23rd, and about two to three days into the storm, at least in terms of it hitting the United States. So thankfully, some of the track was being replaced rather quickly, so that way people could get home, but more importantly, resources and supplies could get in in areas where the train may not necessarily have been able to get all the way into an area where they wanted to, people would actually go there. Um, it was referred to by hacks, which would have been, you know, carriages, almost like a, a cab or a taxi at that point, but without having cars, it would have been, you know, carriages. They would, you know, line up to take people um, from the, railroad, take things that um, needed to be taken within the city since rail travel was not necessarily available for the trains to get to every um, area that they needed to. Part of a small railroad bridge um, was washed away and that brings about even, I would think, a longer time to repair because not only is it the tracks, it's the bridge no matter how long or short the bridge may be. Now as I mentioned before the water itself would bring along more than just water. There would be things that you know people could try to gather and near around the third street bridge at that time things started to kind of pile up there. The tide was actually starting to go out so people especially younger boys as they were lighter the debris itself and everything gathering up along there almost created a walkway for people. So it's like people were walking on that impromptu bridge or piece of, I don't want to say ground, but ways of travel, I guess you would say, where little boys would go out onto it and then try to gather anything that they or their family may need, whether it be wood or corn or anything that might have floated on the river and got stuck whether it was coming in or going out so that again people could try to survive. One of the most devastating events not in terms of just property damage but the aftermath would be when the Lee and Sons flour mill was severely damaged during the storm. They pretty much lost everything. It began pretty early in the morning um, it actually caught on fire and people were working there inside even though a storm was expected I'm sure nobody expected a storm like this but people were working and I kind of wonder you know given the time between 730 and 8 if everybody was fully in at that time or not but the roof did blow off um, and that was in the area that was above the boilers so that created a fire and just based on what the items were within the mill itself it caught on fire very quickly and spread very quickly 
And something that many people may find surprising, and I did when I found this out four or five years ago, um, about an explosion that I believe it was Germany. If not Germany, then another country in about that same area where a flour mill did explode. Flour itself is actually flammable. Um, but usually it's just when the dust is in the air. So if you have a big pile of flour and try to set it on fire, it's not going to happen. But if it's kind of floating in the air and in a mill, you would have the dust that's floating around that caught fire. And I'm sure it had some impact to the way it spread. But because of the wind, the fire did spread to other areas as well. Um... And honestly, at that time, I don't even know if they would have known that flour could catch fire, at least not in the way that this occurred. I, it doesn't mention in the sources that I reviewed regarding this particular case that flour was, um, was one of the reasons the fire spread so quickly. But based on the information that I just knew offhand from, you know, a documentary I um, listened to a long time ago, that yes, it could be flammable. And I'm thinking this probably played a role, even though it's not mentioned directly in the sources. But pretty much William Lee and Sons, they, they lost a lot. But even worse, and I know you might be saying, well, they lost everything, what's worse? There were two what were described as tenement houses that were actually connected to the same building. And though the term tenement does not really bring forth any images of a nice, safe, comfortable home, it was, in many cases, the only home that people had. So you had the mill that you know caught fire, was destroyed. These tenement houses where who knows how many people lived were destroyed. And then to top it all off, the um, mill itself employed about 80 people. So all of their pay that they would have had was, was gone. So they would have to learn to get by not only without their job or their pay, possibly, and again, not mentioned in the sources, I'm thinking a lot of the workers probably lived within the two buildings that burned the tenement houses so they were literally left with nothing if that was the case and while I'd love to be able to sit here and tell you every story about every person that was recounted that's not necessarily feasible by time because we would be here for ages but to summarize in that same area that we were just around in the area of Wilmington near the Delaware Bay. Um, we're, we're now moving to the Delaware Bay and Delaware River and the lower part or southern part of New Jersey where there were a number of boats that were also destroyed as we've seen all up and down the coast. And in one boat there was five. Um, in another boat we hear of another man who was able to get to something where he could lash himself or tie himself down. Um, you know, so people have to take advantage of any situation that they have, even though I know in the modern eye, it's looking at it and thinking, 
why did you tie yourself to a tree? But it's what they had to do then to make sure they weren't carried away by the water because that could mean almost certain drowning. In areas surrounding the Maurice River, there were about 30 ships that they found had um, actually been destroyed or sunk. And then another dozen in um, between cities, the cities of Chester and Wilmington. And in one of the most popular field trips for the state of Delaware, Peapatch Island and Fort Delaware, there were about 16 ships that were found washed ashore in that area. Now this caused even the Secretary of War to be brought into the developing situation as Fort Delaware, as its name suggests, is a, is a fort. So he had to be kept informed of everything that was happening in that area. And even though this podcast focuses on Delmarva, at times things that are occurring in other nearby states can and will impact Delmarva. And especially when dealing with natural disasters, you know, they're not isolated. They don't stop at a state line and not continue on above or below where your state ends and begins. So Philadelphia is you know, pretty linked to Wilmington, which is in the north part of, or the northern part of Delaware. So we are really connected in them, to them in a lot of ways. Um, the winds in that city reached to 72 miles per hour. And in Philadelphia, there were 400 buildings that had their roofs taken off, with at least 118 buildings demolished to some extent. Um, the term used was par partly demolished, but at just from my thought is to be sure that the whole structure is sound. Personally, I would want the whole thing rebuilt. That's just me. Um, these included 23 churches and 70 factories, warehouses, and mills. So again, we have situations where people also worked in these buildings that were destroyed so they could have lost not only their own physical home and physical possessions, but their actual workplace as well. And then we did have the continuation of a number of ships that sunk around 17 and at least five people were killed um, within those 17 ships. Now, this is the first claim that the Delaware Geological Sur Survey went through for Philadelphia, but there are some other reports that um, came out where those numbers are actually even higher. So just sticking with the minimums, that's what you know I went with, but there's a possibility that there could have been even more houses that lost their roofs or were demolished. And while we've covered about what happened to the railroad tracks in Wilmington, in Philadelphia, the actual, I want to call it a depot, it's called a shed um, in the article. Uh, it was called the Shed for Departing Trains. So um, that was written at the time of the storm. So this that was from a contemporary report. But the depot actually was lifted off of the ground, came back down, and demolished about 20 cars, you know, 20 trains. So on top of not having the tracks for 
you know, for people to be able to get into parts of the city and the state that needed it, you now are running low on the actual trains themselves as 20 of the trains were just squashed. Um, the depot itself was actually very, very new. It was only about two years old. And this was one of the more severe costs throughout the, um, the anecdotal stories um, you know, regarding what occurred. A figure that keeps coming up in regards to businessmen or larger farmers who lost a lot of goods it just keeps saying three to five thousand, three to five thousand, three to five thousand, which in today's money is still pretty substantial. But back then that was worth approximately. And so as I'm looking more and more at these figures, you know, I didn't want to go through each figure for each person that we went through, but many of them said between three and five thousand. To get an accurate estimate of what that may be. Um, one site actually had things worth into the millions of dollars, but the vast majority of um, the calculators that were used to recalculate how much an amount is worth now as it did then, about $5,000 was worth or is worth about $109,000 today, give or take, because again, um, I'm, I went through a few different sites, and one only had the over one million mark. Most tended to fluctuate between like one hundred and five and one hundred and ten thousand. So we're just going to stick with that for the five thousand. Um, one did go higher to around one hundred and twenty-five to one hundred and thirty, but just to kind of keep it, I would say, in perspective, at least to, to my understanding would be between about 107 and 130,000. And that was for the $5,000 um, amount. Now, the shed or depot in Philadelphia actually had to be replaced then because it had just been recently built and it was completely destroyed. And again, with an estimate, because there were a few different numbers kind of batted around um, from millions to hundreds of thousands, so looking at those, I'm going to say it was around 400000 since there's such a variance in the amount that it says it's worth. And probably the biggest expense in there was the actual trains themselves. It was about $1,000 per train, and there were 20 trains. So 20000 would calculate to about 575000 so those, honestly, they're using the inflation numbers, and that's what, you know, I want to stay with. However, just remember, too, purchasing power is a little bit different than inflation, whereas inflation is what the money is actually worth. Buying power can be different based on how much, you know, how much is being charged for services or production of the item. So there's a few different things to look at in regards to what those amounts meant. Now, I do want to then start getting into more of the geological impacts of the storm. But before I do, just a real quick story about the Brooklyn Bridge. It was actually being built at the time that this storm came through. And though the winds probably would not have been as intense in New York as they were here, the construction of the bridge 
it, it stayed firm. There was you know, no damage or at least not extreme damage to the bridge. So even before it was completely put together with all of its supports, it still sounds like it was a pretty strong bridge in order to take that from the wind and the rain while some newly built houses were not able to survive. And those houses were completely constructed. So yes, I know bridges are made differently than houses. Bridges would probably be stronger, but the fact that it was not finished is what makes it you know, pretty amazing that it survived without any major catastrophic damage. So as I've been saying, um, you know, yes, many of the stories that I cover did help shape Delmarva, but normally more in the personal sense, whether it's the emotions that the events brought out, um, individual events where, you know, one or a few members of a family or community were affected. But in this case, almost everybody was affected to some degree and some in many, many ways and not just one. But the land itself had some changes happen. And so, again, in this case, I'm actually going to be discussing what shaped Delmarva. So with the wind and the rain, we have to think of the ebb and flow of the current and the waves coming in of water flooding over the river or flooding inland. There are so many things to consider about what water can do to the geography and geology of an area. So fortunately, there had been a map that was done about 10 years earlier in 1868. So though, yes, there had been, I'm sure, a number of changes that took place between those two dates, it was still a pretty contemporary map with information about waterways and where they were, even with houses denoted on the map and who had lived there. So it was a very, very detailed map that people could use to try to figure out what, if anything, had happened to the physical geology of Delmarva. Well, the Geological Survey did acknowledge that the map could in no way be considered 100% accurate, and I'm paraphrasing there. They did see that the number of rivers and inlets seemed to be very accurate, so it could be used based on the assumption that work was done on this map. It was not just made from generalizations, but made because the cartographers knew what they were doing, especially at that time. So the biggest impact was actually around Delaware. I had mentioned Collins Beach before, and that was one of the two hardest hit areas, and Woodland Beach was also the other. So there will be maps and information within the Geological Survey if you wanted to go in and take a look at those. One part of the resort at Collins Beach was the Hygienia House, and water had breached along the bank of one of the rivers, and it actually did that in four places. So as the water came in, it was coming in and staying, um, like I mentioned before. So as soon as water would come in, it would stay there instead of going back out. And the only way to possibly save any of the area was to go through and fill in the areas where the water was coming in. But probably looking at feasibility and how long the breaches may have been, 
it may not have been something that they felt they could undertake at that time. So Mr. Collins had to face facts that he may or may not be able to continue with his businesses after the storm. In some other areas, especially those that were already swamps or extremely laying low um, in regards to sea level, the water came in and even when the breach was filled, nothing happened. It was like a little homemade pond had come and filled in. The creation of these new little ponds or tributaries would then, of course, lead to similar incidents years later because with each body of water that is in the area, the more chance there is possibly of flooding. So a few years later, 1882, um, there was another incident at Collins Beach, so I am feeling really sorry for Mr. Collins at this point, where a retelling of an event that took place in 1883 um, retells that the marshes had actually overflowed again, and so now we have to remember that the marshes are more inland because they were created in the gale of 1878. With each year came more and more damage done to the area with water encroaching on existing houses and other properties. So in 1884, a year after what I just stated, the town of Collins Beach was actually becoming known as a, quote, diminishing island. So it was thinking with the way the water was now coming in, the way it overflowed its banks, that Collins Beach was quickly disappearing. And on the geological sense, things like this were happening very, very quickly. And just noting what took place on this one plot of land where Collins Hotel or Collins Beach would be, the breach um, near Collins Beach was filled in. And it somewhat worked for about two years. It was able to be filled in by 1886. Um, and to, within two years, cattle were able to go onto that part of the land. So it was sturdy, or so they thought. But about 12 years after the original hurricane, it breached again. Um, and even though Collins Beach had been renamed as many people have probably experienced in their area, even if something's renamed, people still refer to it as Collins Beach. Then it was repaired, but once again, just three years later, this time in 1893, another hurricane came by the East Coast, and once again, it breached. April 1894, it breached. And at that point, the wave that came in was um, the worst one they had since the gale of 1878. And even though somehow the bank was able to hold itself against that, um, that new storm of 1894, however, there were other factors that affected the marshes. And the marshes themselves were flooded from the rain that came in from the storm. And that effectively shut down everything. The hotel never reopened. And it wasn't for another 10 years that the hotel itself was actually torn down, which I can only imagine it had to be in such a state because it was sitting there for 10 years in the water, basically falling apart. Um, 
the bank had once again been breached. And at this point, it just, everything stayed. So where Collins Beach, where the hotel was, it's now covered by water. So it's like a marshy area. The progression of that area into marsh was documented in 1884. It, and that map will be in the um, geological survey. So in 1884, it was too flooded for the survey that was done at that time to even try to map it out. Um, then again in 1926 and 27, when the U.S. Geological Survey came in to try to map everything out, it considered that area where Collins Beach used to be a, quote, fully developed tidal stream system. So what... 50 years previously had been an area where people would come down and have fun, dine, dance, was now a marsh. It was, to quote again, a tidal system. And something similar as to what happened at Collins Beach now occurred at the Bombay Hook area that we previously discussed as well, that water came in and basically created a big pond or lake in the area of Bombay Hook. And, you know, at the immediate time, the residents and government of this area did not try to keep repairing the breach as those at Collins Beach did. Um, however, what was done in this area is as was the remaining water from the gale actually could reach the Smyrna River and so basically they were feeding off each other. The, um, the breach behind Woodland Beach or Bombay Hook, um, because the part of Bombay Hook that this referred to is an area called Woodland Beach. So while that was feeding into the Smyrna River, it then fed a tidal lake. So at first they actually did try to build some type of like roadway over um, the area. And that was because the water would, quote, ebb and flow. And so that action also then could create erosion. So they put this bridge up to help rectify the ebb and flow of the water. But more and more storms would occur with little to no outlet of this water so as time has gone by, this area, which is now known as Broadway Meadows, is considered a marsh. Um, so it was a very similar thing that happened to Collins Beach. But again, the difference is in Collins Beach, they kept trying to, um, to fix the breach, whereas um, Bombay Hook, not as much, but still it did end up becoming a marsh tidal system. Now, while something similar happened in an area called Cedar Swamp, there was actually some previously finished work by man that actually exacerbated any issues that would have happened at the Cedar Swamp area. So originally, before Europeans settled the area, the swamp had been able to be navigated by the indigenous people of the area. However, some dikes were built around um, Cedar Creek, and I'm not going to go through like each time something happened, 
But basically, that did change, you know, the way, of course, the swamp flowed. This did not exactly happen over the same course of time as any other changes to a tidal system, and this was because of man-made input. Before the gale of 1878, um, Cedar Swamp had been freshwater, but it only took 20 years for it to become a tidal stream. And again, in this case, similar to Collins Beach, they did try to repair um, you know, any of the breaches that allowed water to come in. However, that didn't work. And so while the patterns may be different than what occurred at Bombay Hook or Collins Beach, it was still changes that took place by the gale of 1878, but it was aided along in the process by earlier settlers. And we may now have to ask, what would be the effect if a storm like this hit today? And is there a chance that it will? I think we can definitively say yes, a storm like this can very easily happen. And we've seen a rise, at least in the past decade or more, just in my opinion, of stronger and stronger hurricanes that are closer to landfall. So a few years ago, we had a horrible hurricane season and then we had Hurricane Sandy. So this is not out of the realm of possibility to have a very large storm blow in to the, to the East Coast or actually any coast in any part of the world. So the differences between then and now are twofold. One is the knowledge we have about weather systems, whether it's a civilian, an individual who has learned more just based on previous studies and their interests, you know, whether studying to work with weather professionally or just as an interest, which leads to having quicker and more accurate updates when it comes to the weather forecast. We also have better building equipments, better engineering, and with as many tin or metal roofs that were in 1878, they're not as many as we have now. In terms of density of population, some of the areas, it really hasn't changed as much in terms of, you know, how many people live along the area. But there are a lot of areas that have. And these main areas of, I don't want to use the term danger itself, but maybe increased risk is along the Christina and Brandy Rhine rivers in Wilmington, which, by the way, I have seen the Brandywine flowing it, the fastest I've ever seen any river flow. When I worked in Wilmington, one of the buildings I worked in kind of faced or backed up to the river, and there were a couple times where the rain was just torrential, and to look out the window and see the water going the way it did, it was scary. I can't imagine being stuck in that, whether you fell in, pulled, or, you know, you were pulled in. It was scary to see the water going that fast. And I would even describe it in some ways as white water. It was moving so fast. And, you know, with the river bottom not being exactly a flat surface, it was just like it was white water. 
I would be scared to go in or near the river at that point. And the chances of more human impact, if that were to flood, would be very much greater now than it was then, even though Wilmington was, you know, and still is um, a very densely populated part of the state. You know, at least we have the weather forecast that we have now, but it would still be an area of, you know, a high possibility of a toll on human life if we were to ever have a storm like this again. That's kind of my opinion on that. But seeing the river flow the way it did is kind of gives you an idea of what may have happened if the winds had also been going that day. Because on the days that I mentioned, yes, there was some wind, but it was mostly the torrential downpour, um, downpour that I saw. If you add in rain and possibly, I'm sorry, add in wind and possibly days of this rain coming down, then just what might happen is really, really easy to see. Other rivers that might overflow and cause flooding is the Delaware River and the Schuylkill River, River, which is more associated with the Pennsylvania or Philadelphia area. So this survey, a geological survey, took the map of 1878 and the areas that flooded and looking at at the rivers, the amount of flooding, you know, it's all four of these that I mentioned, the Christina, Brandy Rhine, um, Delaware, and Schuylkill. These are the ones that are at a higher risk for flooding. Now, any of the banks or areas that are less than 12 feet above sea level, those presented the biggest risk. And also, too, to remember is if the ground in any way tilts down. If it's at a an angle, you're going to have water that just kind of settles in that area too. So there could be a lot of damage, a lot of standing water if anything similar were to happen again. Now earlier I mentioned steeples. Um, and after this storm, a lot of people wanted to put, I guess to use a a term we all know, a moratorium on building steeples, yet it, it wasn't supported by everybody. And that was because basically looking at the odds, they were saying a storm like this might happen only once every two or 300 years. So um, I guess depending on whether or not you live in an area where this could have become a major issue of you or your family or another loved one being hurt by a falling steeple, as well as the cost to repair it, there would have to be a question as to whether or not to rebuild the steeples in the same way, in the same area. But they did, so we shall see if another storm ever comes up, what that might do. Now, here ends you know most of the information that I could find, again, mainly in the geological survey from Delaware. Um, we could see that this storm led to a lot of more marshy area being formed, and in one particular, because of the influence of man years earlier. In other cases, yes, man may or may not have tried to stop the, the breaches that occurred, but Mother Nature came through and claimed the land itself. Now, I am in no way a meteorologist. 
I am not a geologist, but I do find it interesting how one storm could come in and weaken some parts of the shore. Now, I don't say that necessarily in a bad or horrible way, but by saying weaken, I'm talking about, you know, natural breaks that may occur. Um, the rims of rivers or the beaches that hold the water in, how quickly they can break if a storm is pounding us with rain and wind. And while we take it for granted that we'll have notice that we'll know when a storm is coming and we'll make the appropriate adjustments as needed, things change. I don't know if you've ever watched um, watched a weather forecast and how it's one thing, then the storm turns in an unexpected direction. And now all of a sudden, people who were not planning on having a storm happen that day, possibly two or three days from then, um, or maybe just getting rain from the tail end of a tropical storm or a hurricane, if that turns, then there'll be less time to prepare and less time to make sure we have everything that we need, that our infrastructure is strong enough to support the storm that is coming in. And while there have been improvements and I see, I see a better understanding of what can be done, the growth of just any area right now is concerning, but looking at where I live, apartments are being built on stilts and we're not near the beach. Uh, when I say the beach, I mean the actual coast. We're considered inland and we are pretty f far inland um, compared to other parts of the Delmarva Peninsula, even though getting to the beach is not a you know really long, long trip. But at the same time, we have areas that could flood and to the point that you know, to me, they're being built this way because they're so close to the water. I don't know if that's what they're going to say, but, you know, just the fact that they're on a riverbank, that river does flood, and the apartment buildings are being built on stilts. I have to wonder if that's the reasoning. Part of it could be for parking as well, as parking is under the actual apartment buildings, under the stilts. But I guess when looking at impact, the impact to a vehicle financially is less than the impact to a residence. Still, it makes me wonder, and I've always wondered with these new apartments, just the reasoning behind building them there. But this is something that has to be considered whenever there is any new project. So it's not just someone coming in and looking at an empty spot and saying we're going to build here. Yes, there are surveys, studies, anything you can think of being done before a building is built, but seeing that river flood sometimes. And this particular river, I'm not talking, you know, 40 feet high or anything like that. I don't think we'd get that around here, but I have seen it flood. And there are buildings being built not that far away from where it would flood. So I have to wonder what we should do as a society about the need to expand to make sure people have housing. We also have to make sure they have safe housing. And hoping that 
agencies are doing exactly what they're supposed to, all of the necessary studies are being done to keep these buildings safe. But what we can see from this storm, though, is topography, geology of an area can change. Things can be moved about. They can be swept to and from the area. It's, it's something that we need to keep in mind. We hear, and I know it's joking, but... In some realities, if there's a truth, you know, that California is sinking into the ocean, we never think about the East Coast. And yes, a storm could come in and take away and erode a portion of the beach. And it doesn't have to be a major amount, but year after year of things like this happening could lead to a decrease in not only tourism, which would bring in money, but also the pleasure that we get from watching you know, the water roll in, from seeing a dolphin off in the distance. And having access to that is important to those of us who live on the shore, as well as that I'm certain it's important for those who visit the area. So just remember, as we end this, that at any point in time, a storm can happen, even if we're prepared for it by meteorologists and news and even government agencies coming in in advance to try to help us, we have to understand, too, things can change in an instant where we might not think we're getting anything that day or we're getting everything. Now, I believe I'd mentioned before I, had, I, I made a bad choice. I admit that. But I was young, and I hadn't thought about these things as much as I do now about taking a like tour or sightseeing cruise on the James River in Virginia the day before a hurricane was supposed to be, you know, kind of skirting the coast. But it came in about a full day early with the wind picking up and the rain. Was it the full force of a hurricane? No. Was it the full force even of a tropical storm to that point? No. But some of the actions that were done after a previous hurricane did impact what happened. Now, I've mentioned this on, I know, at least one podcast, but I do have another um, podcast I do. So I apologize if I have mentioned this previously about how, yes, I went on the sightseeing trip. Yes, we came back because it started to rain and the wind was blowing 24 hours before any weather station had reported it would start to um, skirt the coast. You know, the the directors of the tour group, they checked, they would know. And based on how quick, quickly they acted and how they worked with everything, you know, I think they followed procedures. I would think they really did check um, the weather because when the first spots of rain came in, they did come on the um, PA and start discussing it. So they were prepared. But even the weather that I checked didn't show even an increase in wind or any chance of showers that day. So even with the technology that we have, things can happen very quickly. And improvements in infrastructure, such as in this case, um, where I was on the trip, they had built um, floating docks because a hurricane that had happened a couple of years earlier had caused the, the fixed or stayed docks since there weren't any 
or wasn't any leeway, it actually destroyed the docks. So they built floating docks, which may not have been like the, the least wobbliest docks in the world. But if a storm came in, the objective was they would not need to replace all of the docks along the James River or any other, um, any other river along the area. But in, you know, the old best of intentions coming back at us, the actual dock came up and hit the stairs onto the tour boat. Now the boat was nice. It was, it was maintained, so it was clean and neat, but it probably didn't have the most up-to-date anything on it. Um, <laughs> and it actually did break part of the steps that we used. They weren't stairs. They were actual steps. Envision like what you would put in an above-ground pool, but a little bit sturdier to go up and down this boat. And the dock, as we approached, the dock came up as kind of the boat was tilting down and it hit the step or the stairs and they broke which put us in a very precarious position of somehow having to get from the boat to the dock and not falling but again the crew did step up they were there to hold our hands literally in some cases to help us um, get off the boat and we all did we got off safely but it just goes again to show how quickly things can change and how even improvements in understanding of some engineering, in this case, the floating docks to, you know, help offset cost, offset accessibility in the future after a hurricane, it also did cause a little bit of damage coming in. So that's just kind of my interesting story about a storm, which, if I remember, didn't even really do a lot of damage but just remember, very few storms have actually what they consider made landfall in Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia since, or in the last 50 years. None in Delaware if they count it. But even with that, the weather is still very, very violent, even on the outskirts or the edges of these storms. So I hope everybody enjoyed, well, I'll say found this informative. And I really did. I, I've been to some of the mills along the rivers in Wilmington. One was a very large one. It's, it's more of a park now. And, you know, just understanding that some of the mills on these same areas, were, they were destroyed. And people who worked there lost everything. And who knows, maybe even the owners lost most if not everything and hoping that insurance would cover but kind of thinking along the same lines of waterways I am working on some um, topics along the lines of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel um, the way it was built trying to find information um, because I know there were at least seven men who died building the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel but also any history since then um, if you are claustrophobic, you probably don't even want to discuss the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. Um, and just as I was starting the research on that, yet another ship got stuck somewhere. It was another boat owned by the Evergreen Company, you know, the Evergiven that got stuck in the Suez, and the Everford was stuck in the Chesapeake Bay, which is kind of, you know, 
Well, the name's called Everford, and it was not. Um, I did hear a podcast where someone said, oh, well, it's just the Chesapeake Bay. It's not like it's a major waterway or, you know, major shipping area. Well, to us it is because, yes, when there was trouble getting things due through, my husband went to a store and the shelves were empty and the store told us things were stuck in the Chesapeake Bay. So whether that was true or not, I'm just describing what an employee told my husband at a store as to why a lot of the shelves were empty. So it can still have an impact. It's a little bit off topic, but that is making it in some ways more difficult to find information on the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel because even if I'm very specific about what I'm searching for, I do get a lot of results back for the Chesapeake Bay Bridge. And I do want to make sure I'm telling about the differences of the two and why the, the tunnel was built the way it was. So those will be in an upcoming episode as I'm still trying to work my way through you know, finding more information about some of the lesser known accidents on the Bay Bridge Tunnel. So I will talk to everybody soon. Um, I hope everybody has a good week and, you know, hopefully the weather will be getting warmer and staying warmer soon. And I appreciate everybody tuning in. Again, all the contact information and sources are in the description. You have a great day and rest of your week.